This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. When there's blood in the streets, uh, lift up, check under the carpet. Many try, but few become master of the mark market. Well, Dean Fergie, thanks very much for making your Masters of the Market debut. Really excited to have you on the show. I thought a good place to start would be if you uh, talk us through Cyan Investment Management and, and what your guys' philosophy is. Yeah, um, thanks for having me on, Chris. Um, look, Cyan's been going for about uh, six and a half, seven years now. We're a small Melbourne-based fund manager. We manage on behalf of, of private clients, pretty much. We run about $50 million in total of um, FUM and really kind of look domestically at smaller up-and-coming businesses, ones that are you know, yet to be discovered that, that are likely to make some significant um, better returns than the broader market and, and aim to do that as uh, successfully as possible over the long term. Now, one of the things that pricked my interest with Cyan is there's a lot of equity managers in Australia that talk about investing in small caps or micro caps, but Cyan really go quite, quite low down the market cap structure in terms of the types of companies you look at. Do you see that as a, as a real point of difference? And what is it about those smaller opportunities that, that, that attract you? Yeah, look, I mean, I suppose I kind of cut my teeth believing that smaller companies can grow faster than larger companies. And I think, you know, mostly that's, that, that's true. Um, the, the market over my time, over my sort of two or three decades in it, has become increasingly competitive. So, you know, when a small cap stock, you know, like say 15, 20 years ago was probably in that kind of sub 500 mil, it's moved down to like 100 mil. Everyone's, you know, trying harder to, to get an edge to find out something that everyone else doesn't know. And, and so you just have to look kind of further down the curve, which has sort of driven our our investment process down to the market cap because market efficiencies are improving greatly with, I guess, with the advent of the internet and the flow of information. So to find an edge, you've just got to just look a bit further afield, I think. And in terms of your background, you studied engineering at uni, you're a CFA. Yeah. Outside of the numbers, what, what's some of the artwork, if you like, to picking winners at that micro end? What are some of the things you look like, be it, you know, who's on the, who's on the cap table, um, you know, sort of employee options or what, what are some of the red flags or, or, or some of the things you look for that have potentially lead to outsized performance in that space? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really long list, Chris. You yeah. know, in terms of stuff to be, to be, a, a, be kind of a, a, aware of or the, the, the red flags, or I think sort of, um, you know, large um, individual shareholders, so that executive chairman, people that are running a, a public business like a private business. And I think, you know, Jerry Harvey is kind of the poster boy of that. He'll just do what he wants regardless of other shareholders. Um, and so you don't like that or you do? No, no, I don't. Like, I, I think that there's got to be a level of independence with respect to, to investing in a public company. And sometimes I think the personalities of, of large founders that, that don't feel they've got no accountability can sometimes go amiss, certainly when the businesses tend to struggle. What about CEOs that don't have any skin in the game or don't own a meaningful amount of equity? Does that bother you? Um, look, generally these days, I think that 
that that they they are compensated in, in other matters. So there's normally a lot of employee share options or performance bonuses and stuff. So so it's 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 stupid for boards not have a you know a CEO or an MD with some skin in the game, whether it's direct shares, or, um, you know, or or options or other kind of financial benefits. So yeah, look, I mean, I obviously like to see people with a certain amount of money in the business, but not too much. Certainly not too much control. What I like to see is an independent board. I don't like to see small boards, as I said, with an executive chairman, maybe with only two other non-execs, one of who's, you know, a, a brother-in-law or something like that. You've <laughs> got to have an independence, which is important. Yeah. Um, but in terms of in terms of finding the opportunities, I feel that you've got to just have a, a very, very broad base of investment opportunities. I think if you're given five investment opportunities, you might select one or two. If you're giving 500, you might select 10. So I think it means if you can compare investments, see what's working, what's not, and you've got a large selection, you're likely to make better investment decisions than you are that if you're, you know, your pure source of of investment, I suppose, um, ideas comes from one stockbroker or your mate who's an investment banker or your dentist that likes punting the stock market. That's my view. And so when you've got that really broad uh, option of, of, in, of an investment universe, universe, you've got a heap of opportunities that you can potentially look to invest at. We've all got limited time and limited capacity to look at those opportunities. How do you start to break them down as which opportunity is going to spend more time exploring versus which ones you're going to let pass through to the keeper? Is there a top-down approach where you might take a, a view on uh, certain industries or certain types of businesses versus others? Is it, you know, if they come from a recommended broker, if, they, if you've seen other funds you admire on the register, what are the sort of heuristics you use to narrow that, that pool of companies to determine which ones you spend more time on and which ones maybe less so looking into yeah, look, I mean, firstly, you know, I think you noted earlier on that, 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 that you know, we don't invest in biotechnology or resources. And it's as simple from, from an understanding perspective. Like one, I think commodities are just, they're, they're, they're too global of an asset class. They're too efficiently priced and we don't feel we've got an edge. Uh, biotechnology, I'm not a scientist, I'm an engineer. And so if someone's telling me they've got cutting edge research on stem cell technology, I'm I'm only guessing. So, so firstly, I want a business to understand if, if it makes sense to me, if I believe I can understand and if I believe it's got a decent future as investment. So it leads me towards one businesses that I can have experience with. So largely domestic and two in industries that I believe I've got some sort of element of understanding. So whether that be retailing, software, you know, healthcare, retirement living, um, early learning centres, any of that financial services, they're the sort of things I gravitate towards. Um, and I guess I've got the benefit of having been around for a long time. There's certainly investments that I won't put money in because of people that I've been associated with in the past that have let me down or that I don't trust. So that's another element I guess you have with a lot of experience that you've got, a, I suppose, a, a blacklist of, of you know, either brokers or, or, you know, basically business people you, you don't want to be involved in. And so that non-resource exposure has been a big tailwind for Aussie fund managers over the last 10 years or so. Now looks like it may become a headwind given the the bumping commodity prices, which you know we don't know how long that'll last for. Does that sort of get you nervous? And how are you going to be feeling in three years' time if 
Coppers up another forty percent and golds at two and a half thousand bucks. Are you going to be able to maintain that discipline, um, even if it, it looks like there's a, a, a potential secular shift in commodities? Yeah, um, look, it's a really good question. It's I suppose um, there's an emotional bias called loss aversion um, and almost the fear of missing out that 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 you know you, you get into stuff because you fear of missing out and, and resources is a good point the main one at the moment is cryptocurrency so mm-hmm. I, I don't think any traditional investors you know old school and traditional investors like myself have, have piled into that asset class because they don't believe it but there's a huge amount of money being made at the moment um you know what we say to our clients is we are a domestic growth industrial fund manager and we don't do resources we don't do biotechnology we're not going to do it. If they become flavor of the month for a while, there are managers out there that can, that are perceived experts in that field and can outperform it. And, and, you know, by all means, go and invest with, uh, with them. We believe it's important to do, you know, find a niche in your market that you're good at and you understand and you believe that you can do well and don't deviate outside that just because something's sort of flavor of the month. And so that's a different mindset in terms of what, what a fund manager in particular like you are trying to do to, say, a family office that's interested in overall wealth creation. Is it fair to say that, you know, a fund manager by the, that's sticking to their knitting by definition is going to miss out on major paradigm shifts? Like if you're around at the turn of the 20th century, you're not going to be investing in oil because you wouldn't be sure if the motor car was going to be around or if it was going to be a just a toy for rich people. Um, yeah. As some people, as JP Morgan, I think, said it was going to be. So you accept you're going to miss out if there is a one in a hundred year paradigm shift, but more often than not, those paradigm shifts don't actually occur and, and you'll stick to your knitting and, and focus on what you're good at. Is that sort of the mindset? Yeah, look, I, I think whilst our sector is is somewhat narrow, it's also quite broad, that, that I can move from financial services to traditional retail to, um, you know, food and beverages, consumer staples. So there's enough scope that if I believe something's going out of favour that I can move away from that within my sector. But also we don't profess to manage someone's entire portfolio. Yeah, You want to have someone managing your bond exposure, someone managing commodity exposure, your equity exposure, be that domestic and international. So we never say, hey, Chris, you know, give me all of your money and we'll invest it for you. You know, if you want to allocate some of yours to equities, then, you know, we're probably good people to manage some of that. But so it's, a, it's, it's not a holistic part of it. We're just yeah. managing a slice. And I think that's where it works. Well, as long as, as long as investors understand that, you know, we're, I think we, we run into a bit of trouble with our clients is that we'll post three or four years of very, very strong returns. And they're like, okay, I'll, I'll give you a big wedge of my money because yeah. I want to make those returns indefinitely. And the, the, you know, the, the reality is you can't do that. You know, you're not going to always really make amazing returns year after year. So just always have to kind of temper people's expectations sometimes, I believe. And is it particularly in micro caps, like over an extended period, is the ability to outperform in the smaller companies, but it's often less smoother ride as if you're investing in larger cap companies just due to the liquidity. Is that sort of something that you have to really make sure people are aware of before they start the journey with you guys? Yeah, look, I mean, there's a couple of things. Obviously, you've got volatility in operations that, that, that earnings can move around a lot, you know, with contract wins and changes in management, you know, the, the actual underlying earnings ride isn't nearly as stable as in a bigger company. Um, then you've got the volatility on top of that, the, the movements in, 
in shareholders coming in and out of the market, move the stock price around as just overall sentiment. So the volatility in, in individual positions is, is much greater. But again, that can always be managed by reducing the size. You know, if you, if you think stock's twice as volatile as another one, you just have half as much in it and the outcome's the same. So it, it can be managed. I think, you know, we say to our clients that, you know, like you think that you're investing in a risky sector, but you can invest in a risky sector in a really responsible way, which means the overall outcomes can be as good or better than just in a traditional asset class. So that's sort of, I guess, the way we think about it, Chris. But yeah, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of risks in in microcaps if you um, probably underestimate where they are. And talk me through um, your afterpay journey. I know you're one of the early investors in afterpay, which must have been an incredible. Uh, Incredible journey. Were you in there at the IPO? Yeah, so it IPO'd actually at like a dollar when it got spun out of um, TouchCorp and then yeah. it merged with TouchCorp at I think it's like $3.50 and then changed its code. I think it was AFY, now it's APT. So, I mean, a lot of people look at the chart and they go, oh, it started at $3, actually started at a dollar. Um, yeah. you know, we just, we liked the guys, um, thought they were really sensible, both um, Anthony Eisen and Nick Mulder, and it seemed to make a lot of sense. Um, I remember taking my, you know, I think he was Thursday at the time, down to Culture Kings down the road, and he bought a champion hoodie, and we put it on Afterpay, and it was just a seamless journey. Like, it worked really well. They sent me a text, you know, a day before they were going to take the 20 bucks out of my account. I think Max actually still owes me 80 bucks for that hoodie, <laughs> now I think about it. <laughs> But, you know, it's a perfect example of if you use a product, it seems to work well, it's simple, I can understand it, and goes well. Now, at the time, did I ever think this would become a, a $30, $40 billion company? Of course not. But, but it had a lot of momentum and it had, you know, good uptake. And um, my business partner, Graham, once said, he goes, I was down the coast and in one of the surf shops, there was a handwritten sign saying, Afterpay is available here. Uh-huh. And those sort of things is when it starts to have a bit of traction. So, I mean, it was just it's sort of a once in a once in a decade, maybe yeah. once in a lifetime investment. And I and I've I would challenge anyone to find where so much money has been made so quickly in a, in a stock domestically. You know, maybe maybe Fortescue Metals has been similar, but it's just been a a one off. But it's been executed incredibly. Um, you know the the the, the hurt is that we decided at $35, it was probably getting a little bit too rich and sold out. So, um, you know, it's one of those things that there's a bit of regret, but there's also, um, you know, we're happy to have been on the journey in the early days at least. I looked at the IPO and decided it was a bit expensive. So there's plenty more regret where I'm sitting than you are. Um, oh, look, I mean, Chris, there's, there's it so It wasn't much ridiculously cheap, was it? Was it 100 mil Val or... And that mm. mustn't have been that high, but it wasn't. It wasn't a thirty mil val or something like that for an no, no, no. I think model, it was, was like a hundred. I think it was like a hundred. Was a hundred? Was it something like that? Yeah. yeah. So um, look, you know, the, it didn't have a lot of revenues early on. No. I, I mean, it's just extraordinary uptake in the business. But look, I mean, I remember looking at zero when it was eight dollars and thinking yeah. that stock was far too expensive, and it went through to a hundred. So. It's not always about underlying valuation. A lot of the market at the moment is about momentum, and if if, if, if a business is growing its customer base, growing its earnings and revenues from whatever level they are, it's more likely the share price is going to go up than down, regardless of where its current valuation is. I think, too, what 
you know, the US often does those types of opportunities like Afterpay better because their total addressable market is usually much bigger than Australia. I mean, you don't see a lot of companies that aren't going to mean revert in Australia. I mean, the resource companies by definition generally do, Fortescue being the outlier. But Afterpay, particularly now that it's expanded into the US, it does just have a, a huge addressable market and is just so scalable. And I just, I guess that's something it shares in common with Zero as well. Yeah, look, I, I think with financial services businesses, because they're, they're all offline, you don't have to set up a network of stores and, and you get the lighting right or warehouses and there's, they're just much easier to expand. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of businesses try to go into, break into the US or China or whatever and, and do it hard, be, do it unsuccessfully just because of the, the cultural differences. So, you know, there are a couple of, outliers there um but they are easy to do certainly the software businesses than anything that's more physical and you mentioned you had a, a, a tinge of regret selling at 35 but after a 35 bag i mean <laughs> i'm sure you've got over it pretty quickly but how do you frame that like you know the selling do, do you sell down gradually in, in increments or are you once you decide it, it's reached a price you're comfortable with it, you're trying to sell out all in one go. How do you sort of scale or, or view that approach to selling? Because I reckon in the small cap game, it's, it's sort of all about the selling. Yeah, look, I think what a lot of investors fail to appreciate, and, and which is a huge advantage of, of the stock market, is that, that you can make incremental changes to your investment, both on the buying into something and getting out. So there's always a propensity for someone to say, oh, God, look, I wish if I'd bought Afterpay at $4 and sold it at 140 I would have done all this. But you, you can't do that. It's like impossible to do. And, and it's more sensible to, to do things in a piecemeal part. So, look, I mean, we, we would have done through Afterpay journey, you know, probably – 20 or 30 different transactions when we bought as this company was proving itself and we bought more. And then as it became too much of our portfolio, we sold down and took a few profits. So, so yeah, it, for us, it's never, we're all in, we're all out. We, we find we build positions as, as they prove themselves and as they rise, we tend to take a bit off the top. And then if something goes a little bit wrong, we'll, you know, sell out completely. And what about, in, in terms of your fund, have you got mandates like if, if a stock gets to 20% of the portfolio, you've got to sell it or, or 15% or 10%? What, how's your fund structured like that in terms of how big a single investment can get? Yeah, um, so ours is 10% of, yeah. of net, net asset value. The thing is, you know, if, if you have stocks that become a large part of the portfolio and you have new, new clients coming into the fund, you know, they may not necessarily be wanting to put 20% of their, their portfolio into a stock that's just, tripled in the last month and a half. So we have quite strict limits, which probably does uh, take a little bit of a cream off the top in terms of, of what we can ultimately achieve. But it also reduces the vol volatility of the fund, which is, which is really important if, you, if you're managing a, a long-term portfolio on behalf of especially individuals, yeah. And if 10 years down the track, you're sick of people ringing up and whinging about performance or what you're investing in and you decide you're just going to invest your own capital would you change that and would you be comfortable having a single position being 30 40 percent of your wealth the the only difference in that i think is is taxation that that you know sometimes if you're sitting on a very very large capital gains depending on the in vehicle you know you may not want to sell that and then pay 
a quarter or a half of that to the tax office, you are better having an over leveraged position just because you end up you know, with more money in your hand at the end yeah. of the day. But I think that's another thing that the individuals don't do terribly well is their winners become a large part of their portfolio. Their losers become a very small part and they're just not managed efficiently. You know, I think people should look at their portfolio and say, okay, if I was given, let's say my $100,000 super fund today, would I put it into these stocks at these prices at this level? And if the answer is no, then they should think about rebalancing their portfolio. And I just don't think there's normally quite that activity that um, you know investors and they should because it's not expensive to to trade in the stock yeah. market these days yeah have you have you ever or have you got the ability to spin something out into a spv if it's a 10 percent of your portfolio and you're convinced it's just going to rocket up another 5x could you put it into a, a separate vehicle well no i potentially we could i think i mean the thing is that these things happen often very very quickly yeah, that you you don't know where your next winner is going to be, and it would be lovely to go. Okay, well, if I knew that this stock yeah. was going to triple <laughs> in the next month and a half, then I will I'll yeah. move put it in an SPV. I guess we could look at distributing that um, in specie to our unit holders, but at the moment we tend to just sell it down and then redeploy that capital into into new businesses. And what sort of cash holding have you got at the minute as a percentage of the fund? Um, it's around about twenty percent, which is can be quite high, but the liquidity constraints in not in our fund aren't that great because we've got a very, very diversified amount of unit holders, but there's always new opportunities come up. So we own shares in a little software provider called Olsidian and they just did a raising because they won a new contract and bought another business and we wanted to have some money to put into that. So, you know, when, when you're active in the small cap market, there's always opportunities out there and you always want to have a little bit of powder dry in order to deploy that capital. Um, you know, secondly, we won't invest if we don't believe there's, a, you know, a, a reasonable risk versus outcome, you know, payoff. So we're happy to keep our money in the bank rather than just have it in the market for the sake of having it in the market. And, um, yeah, so that's sort of why we, we can run cash. You know, sometimes it's even up towards 30% if we're just not seeing things we like out there. Or, indeed, we've taken profits from companies that have done well and we just haven't found a place to deploy it just yet. I've heard you talk about, uh, you know, if you're able to time the market or if you get the right side of timing as to how beneficial that can be, do you actively try and look for uh, potential clues as to what's going to happen in the market from a sort of a, a helicopter view? And if so, what are some of those things you're, you're looking at? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really nice to be able to time it because it, but it's so... Um, it's just really, really difficult to do, to, to find what's going to run. And, and I've sort of said to, to people who've said, have you found the last year? It must have been great. I've said, well, yeah, it is. But, but I, this time last year, I wasn't thinking, well, this is an amazing time to invest. You know, I'm going to pile no. all my money to Temple and Webster and Kogan because <laughs> people start shopping online. I just didn't think that was going to happen. And so, you know, we, we try and look for sectors that we believe are going to capture the market's attention. And... This game is becoming far less quantitative and a lot more qualitative yeah. than it used to be. You know, look, talking about me having an engineering degree previously, you can't just do numbers and it'll spit out a number to where a stock price is going to go. You've got to try and use more psychology to, to, to try and work out what everyone else is going to get excited about. And so that's always what we're trying to, I suppose, get an edge 
from as well. Um, but it's often pretty hard to do. I, I think ultimately it seems to me that one of the biggest factors in the market at the moment is momentum. And if it's going your way, I think you need to run with it in, in, the, in the short term, on the, on the short or the long side, because that seems to be the bigger driver. You, you talked about narratives playing a, such an important role in the market now in psychology. There's a view, which I think is an interesting one, that with money supply in the US growing north of 25% a year, until that denominator becomes stable, the numbers don't really make as much sense as they do when money supplies at a much more reasonable level. Do you think that's contributed to this market where narrative has, has become more important than it has been historically? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, you know, the supply of money, low interest rates, the fact that people aren't getting returns on, on their fixed interest assets is a huge driver of, of asset classes outside of cash and bonds. You know, largely those beneficiaries have been, been equities and real estate and maybe crypto <laughs> um, potentially. So look, I, I can't see that reversing in Australia, but I think there's a mindset here that if I'm putting my money in the bank, I want to be making 5%. And if I'm getting 0.7 or 1, I might as well put it in any stock that's paying a yield above 2 or 3%, certainly if it's fully frank. So I think that's going to be a continual driver. And I, and I think it's a real, very, very large tailwind in the market that's unlikely to abase until we see a reasonable rise in rates. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. And so when you you mentioned in our Colliver interview, uh, a few months back, you said that you thought that value investing uh, isn't relevant anymore. Sort of work, work me through that. And, and do you think that's linked to that, that increase in money supply and the fact that the market is valuing different things more highly these days? Yeah, look, I think there's a couple of things. I think that there's that I've just got a lot of money to deploy and I'll, and I'll just invest it where I can. Um, the second, uh, I think, change in the underlying framework of the market is that you've got now a lot of investors investing. It's easy for them to do and they've got given a lot of information that are, that are non-professional. They haven't, you know, done years of, um, you know, finance that are buying things because they like the sound of them. They think mm. the share price sounds cheap and there, there's no, there's no, they're not bringing anything back to fundamental value. As such, so you know we've seen the Teslas and the Afterpays, and the, these companies tend to be like big, well-known brand names that people mm-hmm. can associate with. But they, no one's doing, you know, working out a weighted average cost of capital, or doing discounted cash flow, or working out market caps or revenues or margins or anything. It's going. I think I sound like the sound of that. And you know, look at the moment. I look at you know the Adore Beauty float was probably one of the mm-hmm. big kind of really well-known ones that was everyone knew about it. And I remember reading in the paper, you know, girls go, I haven't invested in shares before, but I buy Adore Beauty products and I really like the shares and so I'm going to buy some. And like, you know, you need to know that the company doesn't make any money. It's been capped at $600 million. And, you know, that, that's halved since its IPO. So mm. uh, there's this underlying large cohort of investors that um, get in their information from Hot Copper or Reddit or just friends in the market and they're investing, which is, which is driving share prices, but it isn't brought back to true fundamentals. And I think there's where there's, why there's been a disconnect um, you know, it's, I'm not going to say the market's right or wrong. That's just the way it is. And it's the fool that says, I know better than the market. I'm going to prove them wrong because it just, 
that's a sort of you can the market can remain irrational for longer than you can remain liquid. Mm. The saying, and in in terms of market leadership, it looks now if you look at international markets, you know, Nasdaq starting to sell off. We've seen Facebook got crunched today, and, and some of those Fang stocks are losing some of their of their shine. Do you think we're in a phase where we could see a new leadership in terms of global equities and and if that's possible, what do you think could take the mantle from the, the fang stops which have dominated for the last you know, 10 to 15 years? Yeah, look, I think they're all extremely large businesses now. And again, they're all household names. So I don't see there being a massive turnaround that you're going to find a industrial business out of Korea that becomes a sort of a leader. I think one... For as long as I've been investing since the early 90s, it's been you come in in the morning, what's the Dow Jones done? What's the S&P done? You know, to a lesser extent, Hang Seng or the, the Nikkei as such. So Australia will always look overseas for, for leadership. I believe, I think more recently, there's been less of a, you know, we've tended to still do our own thing. Like, I mean, Today, the market seems to be holding up okay and the NASDAQ was down 2.5%. So I feel that there's a little bit more of, you know, we're on our own over here. Especially while the borders are closed, there's, there's probably a little bit more of that, like, independence as such. So, But I just don't see that changing in terms of, of Australians looking to the US for, you know, what direction should we move? In terms of the banking sector, um, you know, you mentioned you've obviously been an investor in Afterpay and, and familiar and comfortable with the financial services space, banking se- sector cost base is just so much higher than those financial services companies that are looking to disrupt them. Do you think that could be fertile ground for the next generation of small cap companies that disrupt and, and grow and take advantage to a, an industry-wide change? Yeah, look, there's a lot of that happening at the moment. A lot of those small lenders have, have, have appeared, the money me's, the plenties, the harmonies, mm. latitude, latrobe, um, liberty. Like they're all trying to make inroads into that industry. And, and I believe it probably is fertile ground. Just as a lot of these little smaller telco players have made mm. inroads into Telstra, you've got these old established, fat, lazy, bureaucratic organisations that just can't move quickly enough in order to to you know compete in a really really fast moving economy these days so it is fertile ground but i mean the banking sector's gone nowhere for for years you yeah. know other than maybe cba macquarie bank and nab's trading at the same price it was 20 years ago so there's certainly value there in terms of investors but i but i don't know that necessarily they're going to completely turn around and start you know getting back their own turf. I think that they're dinosaurs that are probably not dying, but really, really struggling to keep ahead of the pack. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you get a steepening yield curve. They're going to get a boost from that, aren't they, as their margin increase? But you just it feels every business unit, whether it's payments and Tyra and these guys just specialising in that one segment, whether it's credit cards or afterpay and uh, all the other buy now, pay later operators are doing, all the, the, you know, you reeled off all those business lending companies that, it just each niche just seems like it's been picked apart. It almost feels like a potential for sort of TV stations take two. Yeah, look, I don't know if there's the inherent um, massive sort of change in the landscape that the media companies have had, you know, they've gone through. Um, you know, I think that the banks to a certain extent have, have got, you know, some aspect of, 
of uh, tailwind from the new online economy. You've seen branches closing down, everything mm. we're going to online banking. So the cost base has decreased. It's just, I think there's so much fat inside those organisations that they struggle to, to really grow as fast as the smaller players. Yeah, so... But I mean, there's risk in the smaller place as well. You know, like I, I think I worry about a lot of these smaller lenders because, you know, you don't know you've got a problem in your lending book until you have a problem. Mm. I think, you know, until you go through a period of, of, of um, a downturn in the economy, you don't know who's not going to pay you back when they're having troubles. And, and that's where, you know, the businesses, at least the banks have got a, a huge capital base in which to draw on. Some of these players haven't and they might struggle in, in any kind of downturn. And outside of fin services, what are some of the spaces where you're seeing the most exciting opportunities at the minute? Um, look, we really like a lot of the software base. So, um, like I said, we've got a, comp- a reasonable holding in a company called Alcidian that's involved in hospital software. So, healthcare is going to be increasingly important. So, if you combine that with a bit of technology, I think it's a great place to be. Um, I think there's going to be, a, a, you know, we're not going to go back to purely everything's going to be, you know, everything's going to be back in person again. So I think the education space is going to be um, a really fertile ground. So we've got a, quite a bit in online tutoring and um, digitisation of school textbooks and the like. Um, you know, I think healthcare is going to become top of mind again and maybe if they reinvigorate the sort of re- retirement aged care space, um, that's going to be attractive as well. So it's a bloody hard place to... Sp- Hard space to play is that retirement aged care space, don't you think? Do you find it hard to get? Well, I find it very hard to get my head around just the the numbers and the business models of a lot of those operators. Yeah, that's right. And regulatory, it's it's pretty difficult. And I think there's been enough um, players that are probably not doing quite the right thing in that space. That's that's made it probably put a little bit of a a cloud over the whole sector as well. But I think that the economic tailwinds are are still there for sure yeah that's good and what about your team do you have you set it up is it just you in there or have you got a couple other people working uh with you to, to pick the stocks um yeah so i work with uh, my business partner graham carson um there's just the two of us we outsource all our custody and um unit pricing and accounting and all that sort of stuff um, you know, where we're different is we do everything um, unanimously. So if, if I like a stock and Graham doesn't or vice versa, then it doesn't go into the portfolio. So I think one of the issues with, with some fund managers, you have these silos of, of the resources team over here and the consumer, you know, durables team over there and the, the healthcare team over there. And they, they you had this sort of um, fragmented portfolio you know we look at everything together if we don't agree it doesn't go in the portfolio so we think there's quite a high bar to entry for the portfolio you know maybe we we lose a little bit of breadth in terms of what we can look at but again we think our our space is reasonably narrow so um by and large it works pretty well i mean i i think it's it's good to have checks and balances when you're investing because something times i get really excited about stocks and grimes like well, hang on a minute, you know, the margins aren't that great. I'm like, oh, you're probably right sort of thing. So, you know, I think it's a really, really good test and the outcome certainly wouldn't be as good as if I was just trying to do it on my own. And I'll, I'll let you go in a minute, but just to finish up, what's, what's the most common mistake you see retail investors make when they're investing their own capital? Um, I think not selling out when, when things don't go to plan. The, there's a real issue with, with wanting to hang on to stocks yeah um and you know definitely 
can adamantly tell you that if a stock is not going right for you, for whatever reason, sell it, take the capital loss and move on to something else. That's, that's the best thing. It, running, running portfolios is a game. You've got to add up all your winners and subtract yeah. your losers. And, and so you've got to, it's, it's two parts of it. And so people only concentrate on finding the winners and, and hang on to losers. But, you know, cut your losers out of your portfolio and you'll end up with a better overall result. Brilliant. It's a brilliant place to finish. Dean, thanks very much for coming on. Really enjoyed the chat. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chris. This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.